I have the honor of uh, introducing Dr. Gary Goldenberg, who's a medical director of the dermatology faculty practice at Mount Sinai Medical Center and assistant professor of dermatology and pathology at that same institution in New, in New York City. His sister is a PA, not in dermatology, but I'm betting she'll probably hear about this when he gets back home. Dr. Goldenberg told me he's impressed by the large size of the group. Dr. Goldenberg received his medical degree from Temple University uh, uh, and completed his residency at Wake Forest. He's going to speak about actinic keratoses. Join us in welcoming Dr. Goldenberg. Good afternoon, everyone. Let me get my technical bearings here first. That's the slide advancer. And here's my laser pointer. Well, thank you, everybody, for, uh, for having me, for inviting me to come here. This is a very large group. I wasn't sure what to expect. This is my first time speaking at this, uh, at this conference, and it's, it certainly is impressive. Today, we're going to be talking about actinic keratoses. And my talk is going to be about 50 minutes, and then I want to leave some time for questions, because this is a broad topic, and if you look at the numbers, in fact, in the Medicare population, this is the number one diagnosis made by dermatologists based on insurance data. And if you look at all age groups, it's number two diagnosis after acne. So this is quite a, quite a large part of what we do. Here's my disclosure of interest slide. And I will be talking about medication use off-label. And then if there are any questions, we can certainly address those as well. And here's the outline. So we're going to sort of make a circle. We're going to start off talking about progression of AK to squamous cell carcinoma, which is why we're talking about AK in the first place. And then we're going to sort of end with dermatopathology and kind of tie it all in. And then in the meantime, we'll talk about some studies that are relevant and are important for us to know and some, some therapeutics that, are, that we can use to treat our patients. So why do we care about actinic keratoses? Well, it turns out there's indisputable evidence that actinic keratoses are precancerous lesions. And in fact, some people, some authorities, consider them to be the earliest stage of squamous cell carcinoma. The late, great Bernard Ackerman, who was the father of modern dermatopathology, would call the squamous cell carcinoma in situ actinic keratosis type. And there is a reason to believe that this is a progressive disease, just like VIN1 to VIN3 to vulvar carcinoma is a progression, and so is actinic keratosis to squamous cell carcinoma. So this is another study in, in, in numerous studies that just shows that exact progression. In this study, this particular group used gene chips, which have mRNA, and they studied normal skin, which is not sun-exposed, so the buttock biopsy area, sun-exposed skin, which is, not, which is not diseased, actinic keratosis, and squamous cell carcinoma. And what they showed is that there's a progression in genetic abnormalities from normal skin, which is not sun exposed, to skin that has had too much sun damage, to actinic keratoses, to squamous cell carcinoma, finally. And you can see here there, there were 186 genes that were either overexpressed or underexpressed, and most of these abnormalities were between AK and squamous cell carcinoma. That's where you saw most of the evidence. So this is just another. Another paper that shows that there is this progression from AK to squame. 
So we're going to switch gears here just for a second. And actually, quite for a while, we're going to talk about this, this trial, which is probably going to be the largest actinic keratosis trial that will ever be published in the dermatology literature. And certainly up to date, it is the largest actinic keratosis trial. This is in the VA system. And this is a trial out of which many papers came out. And the idea in this trial was that you could use tretinoin to help prevent progression of actinic keratosis to basal, basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. So veterans were given tretinoin 0.1% cream, and they were instructed to use it once or twice a day as tolerated on their balding scalp, face, and ears. And they were followed for approximately six years, or at least the idea was to follow them for approximately six years, every six months. And if you look at the numbers, I know it's hard to see from where you're sitting, there were approximately 1,200 patients who were randomized into two groups, placebo versus tretinoin. And these are vet veterans. You know, they, they keep their appointments. All their records are electronic. You can really easily track them. And the thing that's really impressive about the study is this, and I'll read this to you if you can't see it. There was an increased mortality, okay? I'm going to repeat myself. There was an increased mortality in the group which used topical tretinoin. This is the tretinoin we give our teenage patients for, for pimples. So the group of the vets that used topical tretinoin to prevent progression of AKs to squames and basal cells had an increased mortality than the group that used placebo, that used vehicle, that used petrolatum basically, just cream. And there was a statistical significant difference in every site. There were six sites in this, in this, in this program and in every site, there was a higher rate of mortality in the group that used tretinoin as opposed to the group that used placebo. And when they tried to figure out what was, what was killing these veterans, it was the, things that, it's the thing that kill most Americans, which is cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, heart disease, things of that nature. And then, of course, because all the records are computerized, this is an EMR system that the veteran hospital has, they try to control for every variable that they possibly could control for. And if you look at univariate and multivariate analysis, there was still a statistically significant difference in mortality between the tretinoin group and the placebo group. Now you ask, well, maybe they enrolled kind of patients that would look like they were you know, one foot in the grave anyway. Well, they didn't because they wanted the study to last for six years. So patients that had the worst heart disease the worst heart failure, the worst emphysema, the worst COPD, high risk for cancer, history of cancer were not enrolled in this, in this study. These were quote unquote healthy veterans that get their care at the VA. So even when you control for all things like gender, smoking, history of any other diseases, there was still a difference between the tretinoin group and the placebo group. And this is important because the people who really care about this study, because most dermatologists dismiss it, and in fact, if you, if you talk to Marty Weinstock, who was the head dermatologist on the study, he'll tell you that he doesn't believe these results because this is not what they expected. So they didn't confirm all these risk factors before the patients were enrolled. But the people who really care about these studies are the 800,000 lawyers that are practicing in this country. And they know well about it. And just, just be cognizant of this. I think it's very important that when you give somebody tretinoin for chemo prevention, or let's say you give it for, for wrinkles or for photo damage, I always write in the chart that I've discussed this with them, and in fact, and I have no conflict of interest with the manufacturer of this, of this product, 
In fact, I've moved away from giving generic tretinoin for wrinkles and, and sun damage, and I've only prescribed Renova because it's been studied in the elderly population or the older population. In teenagers, you don't really have to worry about it as much because they're not as at high risk for death from atherosclerosis, but in your patients that are older, perhaps there's something real about it, so just be cognizant of the study. I think a lot of people actually missed it. There were five papers, really great papers that came out of the study, and this is one of them. And this is a study, this is a paper that looked at reliability of counting actinic keratoses before and after a brief discussion of a bunch of board-certified dermatologists. So it turns out there's a lot of variability in counting AKs. In fact, if you look at all the AK trials, most of them will have about a 20 to 30 percent clearance rate with a placebo, with a vehicle. And one of the reasons for that is you get, you, you, you know, we're, we're a little bit too eager to enroll these patients. It's called an enrollment bias. So we think maybe we're counting Sebderm as a little AK, or maybe we're thinking that an SK is really an AK. And in this study, they wanted to see how a group of dermatologists does. So they had seven dermatologists who have experienced and seen patients. These are not newbies right out of residency. And they had nine volunteer patients. And each of them went and saw these patients before and after they talked about what an AK is. How do you define an AK? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What do you, what do you think about the actual lesion? And it turns out that after they, they talked about AKs, the variability of what was called actinic keratosis prior to this little conference decreased. So, so to me, what this means is that every now and again, all of us need a little refresher. We need to kind of step back and say, well, am I just freezing subderm? Is this an SK? Is this a pigmented AK or a lentigo? And maybe even talk or review the literature to see exactly what these lesions are. The most important study that came out of the, the VA trial is this one, and this was published in Cancer. And if you, you know, if you know how prestigious that journal is, you know, if you're a dermatologist, it's almost impossible. You could be a professor chairperson, and it's almost impossible to get anything published in a journal like Cancer, New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA. These are really the more prestigious journals that have a high impact factor. So this was published in Cancer, which is a pretty important journal. And this particular study looked at the rate of progression of actinic keratoses to keratinocyte malignancies. So the Oklahoma City VA was involved. It was the only site in this particular study. And they had 169 patients, which is a really large patient population for an AK study. And the mean follow-up was 42 months. So this is a long-term study. This is not a three-month follow-up or a six-month follow-up or even a year follow-up. This is several years of follow-up. And the patients had a total of seven visits. And if you look, some of the things that we already know about AKs was confirmed. For example, an average patient with AKs has 7.8 lesions. If you look at every AK trial done by any pharmaceutical company, on average, the patient has about eight actinic keratosis. And this was confirmed here in this bar graph. So majority of patients had between five and 10 AKs. Of course, some were outliers where they had really lots and lots of actinic keratosis. Well, what happened during the 42-month duration of the study? You know, if they had eight, eight AKs, let's say, in the beginning, well, majority of them over the 42 months, let's see, developed approximately 40 actinic keratosis, 40 to 60 actinic keratosis. So you do see that during this, this time period, even though they were treated, they were still developing new lesions. And this is something that's been confirmed in studies in the past as well. And as no surprise, most of these were on locations like the cheeks, temples, forehead, nose, ears, 
around the eye. So things that are, we're, these are the areas where we commonly find actinic keratosis. Why is this important to review? Well, let's say you're using a topical preparation for your patient with AKs. There's really no reason for them to use it, let's say, on their chin, because that's not one of the most common locations. For, for balding men, it's very important to put it on the scalp, and everybody else, forehead, temples, nose, ears. These are the places where the, that's where the money is, that's where the stuff is, that's where the business is, so that's where you want to treat them. Almost 8,000 AKs were, cut, were, were studied in this particular patient population. This is a huge number of actinic keratoses. 411 lesions were biopsied. Now it's important to know why things were biopsied. They were only biopsied if the dermatologist who was following the patient thought there was progression from an actinic keratosis to a keratinocyte carcinoma. They weren't biopsied because your BMW payment's coming up. They were biopsied because the person was worried that they were progressing from a precancerous or early cancer, however you want to think about it, to an invasive carcinoma. And what did they find? Well, they found that of the 411 biopsies, 30% were primary squamous cell carcinoma. So squamous cell carcinoma was the most common biopsy diagnosis. So these are experienced people. You know, they're not, they're not going to get too many uh, seborrheic keratosis on their biopsies. Surprisingly, almost 20% of the lesions, which were AKs, were actually turning into basal cell carcinoma. Now, Usually when we think about AKs, we think about squames as being the primary keratinocyte malignancy that, that AKs grow into, but basal cells made up almost 20%. 40% majority were still AKs. So even when we worry, a lot of times there's still actinic keratoses. And there were some, some stragglers, recurrent carcinoma, seborrheic keratoses, and other nonspecific or no pathology. I guess they did not have a dermatopathologist look at all of them because we can no, you know, I've, I've never signed out anything as no pathology. That's, that's kind of not what we do. You guys don't like that. The people who send you the biopsies do not want to see no pathology in normal skin. At any rate, the risk of progression was also measured. So if you look at risk of progression to squamous cell carcinoma, invasive or in situ, the risk in four years was 2.6%, almost 3%. To pro progression to a primary invasive squamous cell carcinoma, here I'm favoring the screen. I'll, I'll move over here now. Um, was about 2% in four years. If you look at progression to basal cell carcinoma, look, it's almost the same as squamous cell carcinoma. This is a little surprising for, for a lot of folks because we normally think of AK as a precursor to squame. Well, it turns out it's also a precursor to, to basal cell. And what was most interesting or the most important that came out of the study is that risk of progression to any keratinocyte malignancy so basal or squamous cell was 4% in four years. And if you look at the literature historically, historically people will quote 10% in 10 years per lesion risk of an AK turning into a squame. So why is this important? Well, it's important because if you have a patient that has two AKs or four AKs, the risk is really low. But if you see a lot of folks like I see that have 50 AKs or 100 AKs or their whole scalp is one big AK, or their whole back of the hand, the dorsal hand, is one big AK, it's almost certain that they're going to develop a keratinocyte carcinoma in that area. So it's very important to, to treat every single one of those actinic keratoses. The other thing that's important is the longer the AK hangs out in the field, the higher its chance of progressing. So 
the lesions which were present in, at baseline evaluation had a higher risk of progressing to a keratinocyte carcinoma than lesions that were found or, meant, or, or that were picked up at the last visit. So the longer something stays there, the higher its chance of progressing. And that actually makes sense because if you think about an AK, it's got a bunch of mutations already in its DNA, right? So now it's just waiting for that one or two more mutations to take that step of no return, so to speak, where it's going to turn into a squamous cell carcinoma. So the longer it's there, the higher the chance. What does that tell me? You got to freeze every AK. You got you to use topicals. You got to treat every single lesion. You can't just say, well, we're just going to watch these. You have 50 AKs on your scalp. You know, we're going to freeze 16 today, and then we're going to have you come back in six months. You got to treat every single lesion because the longer it's there, the higher the chance that it's going to progress to carcinoma. Well, if you're wondering what happened to the tretinoin, turns out that there was no difference between the tretinoin group and the placebo group, other than that whole mortality thing that, you know, it's not that important, but the, you know, the risk of progression was the same. And this is the same data in, uh, in uh, chart form. This is the same data showing that the longer something is there, the, the, the higher the chance of it progressing and, and more numbers are, um, are coming up, more AKs were formed. So of the 187 primary SCCs on face and ear, 65% arose from actinic keratosis. In this particular study, of the 210 primary basal cells, 36% arose from AK. So this is another point. AKs are not only pre-squames, they're pre-squames and pre-basals. There's actually really good derm path data that suggests that about 98% of squamous cell carcinoma has an AK somewhere in the biopsy site. So when we sign out squames, most of them have AKs, and we actually say that it's arising from an actinic keratosis to really point to the importance of an AK lesion. The lesions that do not seem to arise from AKs tend to be very aggressive squames that instead of spreading laterally, they kind of dive down right away, and keratoacanthomas, which are a different type of squamous cell carcinoma. So we do also know that some AKs go away on their own, and that was proven in this particular study. So if you look at baseline AKs, at one year, 45% of them were still present. At five years, 30% were present. So they do have a chance of regressing. And there's really good data to show that they regress with things like sunscreen and lack of sun exposure. So if you have a patient with lots of AKs, it's not enough to just treat them with topicals and cryosurgery. You have to educate them and tell them that what they do at this point in their life actually makes a difference. You know, it's not just good enough to say, well, you know, you can't undo the past. I know you're using iodine when you're 20 and using the reflector and, you know, you're playing outside when you're a little boy or girl. It makes a difference what the patients do at this point because AKs do regress and getting rid of sun exposure and using sunscreen actually has been shown to decrease the number of actinic keratosis that patients make. And that's kind of the same, um, same uh, in, in chart form. So the conclusion of the study was very important. I'm going to read to you this, this key sentence. The AK may play a greater role in overall burden of keratinocyte carcinomas than previously documented. So, which is a, a reason for us to treat patients with actinic keratosis to make sure that we treat all of the actinic keratosis that are there. All right, let's talk about quality of life. <clears throat> so every trial like this will have a quality of life component because it's very easy to do that study. And in this particular study, this particular study was no exception. So they looked at almost 1,000 
patients. And they use the Skindex, which is a questionnaire that looks at quality of life of patients in general dermatology. And then they asked some keratinocyte carcinoma specific questions, like bother from scars, appearance, persistence of condition, worry about treatment, and worry that the condition will spread. So these were specifically tailored to actinic keratoses. And what happened? Well, if you compare this to some historical controls, guess what? Patients hate actinic keratoses. Okay, they hate them. And what's even more interesting, if you look at univariate analysis of, of things that were associated with poor quality of life in these patients, the top three things were greater AK count. So if they have two, it's not a big deal. If they have 20, it's a bigger deal. Ever using 5-fluorouracil 5%, ever, not, not twice, three times, 10 times, once, ever using 5-fluorouracil 5%, and greater sun sensitivity. So patients with AK tend to complain about being sun sensitive. They burn more easily, and they, they don't like to go in the sun as much as they used to. If you look at multivariate analysis, with the worst, associated with the worst quality of life, the two things that patients hate, 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 hate the most about having AKs, greater AK count, and ever using 5-fluorouracil. So one of the top two things that patients hate the most is our fault, because we're the ones that are giving them 5-fluorouracil 5% twice daily for two to four weeks. So just keep that in mind when you see your patients with lots of actinic keratosis. And these are veterans, don't forget, these are not the Yentas from the Upper East Side that I see. These are tough as nails people that have been through the ringer a couple times and they, they still complain about using 5-fluorouracil. Another interesting thing that came out of the study is association with using ACE inhibitor or, or our blockers and having prevention of uh, keratinocyte carcinoma. And this is actually known in other cancers as well that um, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and ARBs actually seem to have chemopreventive activity, and it's thought that it's because angiotensin II is, a, is an angiogenic uh, molecule and a growth factor. So if you think about cancers growing, they need vascular supply, they need lots of blood vessels, and if you have lots of ACE2 there, it's gonna be there's gonna be more tumor potential for growth. And they looked at a bunch of uh, vets and they stratified them into those that were in ARBs and ACE inhibitors and those that weren't. And if you look at basal cell carcinoma, well, the patients who were in ACE inhibitors and ARBs had a lower progression of lower number of basal cells than those who weren't. And the same thing goes for squamous cell carcinoma. So patients that, that take ACE inhibitors and ARB, ARB inhibitors or blockers tend to make fewer of these particular cancers. So we're going to move on to a different topic here, and I want to talk to you about something that's been recently approved for treatment of actinic keratosis, and that's imicomat 3.75%. I know that everyone here has used imicomat 5%, but in order to really understand what's so new and different about 3.75%, you really need to know the difference between the two molecules and the difference between the way the studies were done. So 3M, which 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 is what uh, manufactured 5% of Mikomat or Aldara, was a company that, how do they make their money? They make post-it notes, right, that are about yay big. So they had this molecule that they used for genital warts, and they knew that it would work, and they said, well, how can we get it to work for actinic keratosis? So when they went through the FDA, 
they used a 25 centimeter square area on the faces and scalp as the cosmetic unit. A 25 centimeter square area is the size of a post-it note. What's different about 375% of Mikomod is that the entire face or balding scalp were measured in these studies. And I know this intimately because our site was one of the sites for the, for the trials. So one of the things that separates the 5% from the 3.75% is how the studies were done. In one, you, used a you looked at a post-it note size area, and in the other, you, used, you looked at an actual cosmetic unit, a balding scalp in a man or a woman, or face, the whole face, so a much larger area. Well, 3M, you know, they're very smart, but they're not a pharmaceutical company. And they said, well, we're going we're gonna to set the bar really low, and we're going to only include non-hyperkeratotic, non-hypertrophic AKs, 5% of Mikomod. If you look at 375% patients, hyperkeratotic and hypertrophic AKs were actually allowed in the study. Again, one has the bar set low, the other one has a bar set higher. If you look at the number of AK lesions in the study, well, guess what? You're, you're, using a, a march, you're looking at a much larger area, so you're going to have more AKs in the study. In 375% program, there were uh, 20, 5 to 20 AKs. In the 5% program, 4 to 8 AKs on average. So I want you to get the idea of why there's a difference between the way the studies were done. One specifically was setting the bar very low. And 375%, the bar is set a little bit higher. So when you look at the data, if you look at the difference, you have to understand why it is the way it is. And the, the thing that people hated the most about 5% is, is, the, is the treatment duration, up to 16 weeks, two times per week. How many people here actually think that any patient could do something twice a week for 16 weeks? Any, does anyone think that? Because if there's anybody here, I, I, have, I have some land in Florida I'd love to sell you. It's, it's not going to happen. The compliance here is going to be zero. Do you know how many dermatologists in the whole United States actually prescribe this medication two times per week for 16 weeks? Do you guys know this? I mean, this is kind of a joke, but it's, the joke is it's one person, and she's never written a prescription for it. So really, no one used it the way it was approved by the FDA, whereas if you look at the 375%, it's a much easier... Uh, a treatment duration. It's two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. It's cycle therapy, which is what we do in dermatology anyway. In order for us to understand why it's so hard to get the drug through the FDA, you have to understand exactly how high the FDA sets the bar for new drug approval. So primary objective was complete clearance. And let's say you have a patient that has an average, let's say 10 actinic keratosis, because I'm not good at math, when they enroll the study, into the study. When you use a topical therapy for the field, for the entire field, you're going to pick up lots and lots and lots of subclinical lesions. It's not good enough in the FDA's eyes to clear the 10 actinic keratoses that this patient had in the beginning of the study. Let's say they have 10 actinic keratoses in the beginning, and through the study they, they unmask or uncover that there are actually 50. You have to clear every single one of those 50 actinic keratoses. Not the 10 that they had when, when they saw you initially, but every single one that they develop while they go through the study. So the bar is set very, very high for clearance. So not only the baseline lesions have to be cleared, but every single lesion that you develop while you go through the study has to be cleared in order to achieve this primary objective of complete clearance. Secondary objective was partial clearance, more than 75% of lesion reduction. So if you started with 10 and you had 100, in the middle of the study, you had to clear 75% of those. 
And then the sec another secondary objective is median percent reduction of lesions. This is the one that I care about the most. I don't care about the, the primary objective as much. I don't care about the complete clearance as much. I care about patient has 10 actinic keratosis when they see me. I give them this medication. They use it for six weeks. I can tell them you have, you have a certain percentage chance of clearing this many actinic keratosis. So when you come back for your follow-up, you're going to go from 10 to whatever number we're going we're gonna to look at. And look, let's look at the numbers. So the study design, as we said, was a cycle of two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. If you look at the numbers, if you look at complete clearance, 30, 35.6%, so almost, uh, almost 36%. Pretty good for, uh, for a drug that you only use for six weeks. Partial clearance was 60%. So more than 75% reduction in lesions, 60% of patients achieved. But this is the one that I really care about percent reduction of AKs, 82%. So why is this important? I have a patient with 10 actinic keratoses or 100 actinic keratoses, and I tell them, you're going to do this treatment. You're going to use a Mikumat 3.75%, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. And when you come back, 80% of your AKs are going to be gone. So, so instead of spritzing you 100 times today, you're going to use this cream when you come back to the office in eight weeks after you're done with this treatment, we're only going to spritz 20 of your actinic keratosis, or whatever the numbers are. I'm just picking around numbers because I'm bad at math. Now, I have pictures of these patients that, are in the, that were in the trials. I'm not going to show you a complete clearance because you can imagine they had a bunch of AKs, they went through this thing, they made more AKs, and then there, were nothing, there was nothing left. But I want to show you what was considered failure in the eyes of the FDA, okay? This is our governing body that decides which prescriptions make it to the market and which don't. I want to show you what was considered failure. This is, this is partial clearance, 75% clearance. So here's a guy, I call this the George Costanza effect, right? Lost his hair maybe a little bit too early, maybe had a little bit too much sun, and in this particular patient there was, you know, here's you see your baseline actinic keratosis. Okay, so here's week one. So you could see some lesions lighting up. Right, so went from this to this, not bad. Week one of using this, this topical Omicomot 3.75% QHS for one week. Here's week two. Do you guys know what TNTC means? If you can see that small, it says too numerous to count if you cheat. Too numerous to count. So, you know, getting into dermatology, you know, some people would give their pinky toe to get into dermatology. They do anything to be a dermatologist, right? When, when I was a resident, it was the resident's job or the fellow's job to count little actinic keratoses. When you see too numerous to count, that means the fellow that's dying to get into dermatology would do anything to get into dermatology. Even for that person, there were too many spots to count. Okay, so they could spend an hour, you know, counting and they just couldn't because there's too many. So you went from this to this in two weeks. Well, here's the thing that's most interesting. You say, well, this, this looks pretty bad, you know? Like, this guy couldn't have dinner with Mayor Bloomberg. Couldn't go to his niece's wedding, right? Here's two weeks rest period. That's pretty good, right? That's almost as good as he looked when he started. So this good-looking guy now with this good-looking scalp could really do anything. So the point is that the, the erythema, the crusting, 
And, every, and all, all, the symptoms that happen when you use this treatment, they tend to go away in about two weeks after. What happens if you use the second cycle? When you use the second cycle, guess what? There's still actinic keratoses that are underneath the surface. So this is very important to see. Here you have, oops, one too many, baseline, right? You say, okay, you see this patient, you have two minutes because you're running really behind. You come in with your cryospray and you say, see you in three months. Well, look at, how, look at how many lesions you're not treating. These are all subclinical actinic keratoses. So it's not good enough to just spritz. You really have to use a topical to treat the subclinical lesions. And what I tell patients when I talk to them about this, you know, because a lot of times, you know, I'm a young guy, they, they'll see somebody for 40 years, you know, they retire or die, and then they come see me and I say, well, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, and they say, well, for the past 30 years, I've been seeing this, this person who's just been spritzing me every three months. Why do I have to do this cream? And the way I explain it to patients is like this. If you're only freezing your AKs, it's like pulling weeds out of your garden one by one. You know there's going to be more weeds because the seeds are still in the soil. So you have to treat the whole garden. You have to treat the field. And that's a prime example of this. Here are your weeds that you can just kind of spritz. And here's the stuff that's hanging out underneath the surface. It's just waiting to come out. So if you're only treating with cryo, you're not doing your patient any favors. I want to show you one more patient. This is considered a failure. This patient did not clear even 75% of his lesions, okay? And I want you to watch. This is one week of treatment. This is two weeks of treatment, okay? That's pretty nasty. That's pretty, that's, that's severe. That's, that warrants a phone call. He's probably going to come in. His wife's going to yell at you for, for doing this because he's scaring the grandkids. But look what happens two weeks later. That's not bad. That's two-week rest period. So now, you know, little Johnny and Susie can come over and play with Grandpa, and really, he's fine. So I think that's pretty important that you can go from this to that in a period of two weeks. And you do it for two more weeks, and guess what? There are more AKs underneath the, sur the surface. So it's really important to complete your whole cycle. And here's why he was considered a failure. At the end of the 14-week follow-up, this guy had three actinic keratoses left. Now, in my eyes, he's a success, because if you can go from this to this, I'll take that on any patient, which is why I think the complete clearance rate and 75% lesion reduction is really baloney. What I really care about is what percentage of AKs that a patient has are going to go away. And with this particular treatment, it's 80%. So here's your before and after. Now, he's a good-looking fellow. So what do most people do? Well, most people um, freeze. Most people still freeze their AKs, but what we really want to move to is combination therapy. And this is a study that um, we did at Sinai. We were one of the centers for the study. Where they looked to, we looked to see what happens if you used both modalities. You have a patient come in, you freeze some AKs, and then you give them a topical treatment. Because remember, it's not one or the other. It's usually both things that are symbiotic that makes the biggest difference. So patients came in, they had to have more than 10 actinic keratoses on their face. We cry out some of the lesions. So Five to 14 AKs were cryoed. Now, here's a, here's a kicker. We waited one to two weeks to apply the medicine because this was, this was a pharmaceutical company-sponsored study. So in the, in the package insert, it says that you cannot apply imicomod 375% on, on a braided or raw skin. So we had to wait one or two weeks. And my patients, I don't wait. I freeze them the same day they start using their, their prescription. And then 
Some patients were randomized to placebo, and some patients used imiquimod 375% on label, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. So what happened? Well, what's really important here is not this, so don't look at that, and not this, so don't look at this. This is what's important. Is there an additive effect? Do you get anything out of freezing and then using imiquimod 375%? And the answer is yes. So the lesions that were treated with cryosurgery and imiquimod had 100%, 100% were gone. Those who were just treated with cryo, 80% were gone. So you get, a, you get an additive effect. But we don't care about complete clearance, right? What we care about is lesion reduction. So if you look at, um, if you look at lesion reduction, I'm sorry, if you look at complete clearance, oh, I just got myself confused. This was the median reduction. This is the complete clearance. If you're only freezing and using placebo, 30% of AKs go away. So you froze it, 14 weeks later, 30% are gone. If you froze and used the Mikomod, double that, 60% are gone. So there's an additive effect of using cryosurgery and a Mikomod 375%, and that's what we really care about. So right now we're doing the same study on hands and forearms. So if you invite me next year, hopefully I'll have that data to show you. So let's move on to the next topic. And we're going to talk about 5-fluorouracil. So this is, this is kind of like your grandfather's or grandmother's way of treating AKs. That's how I look at it. So there's really not much new about it because this is a medicine that was first used in dermatology in the 1950s. In the 1950s was the first time you used 5-fluorouracil in dermatology. This is a review that I found interesting where they looked at nine studies. They looked at 0.5% 5-fluorouracil at four weeks post-treatment versus 5%, this is the one that the vets really hated, four to six weeks post-treatment, three studies. This is just a, a review. And what they, what they found is the complete clearance rate for 0.5% ranged from 15% to 60%. And for 5% fluorouracil, it ranged from 43% to 100%. Now, when I see that something is 100%, guess what? I don't buy it because nothing is 100%. If you show me a study that shows that something is 100%, the study is flawed, because nothing in medicine is 100%. Patients don't read the textbooks. You know, you gotta have a few outliers, you're gonna have a few outliers. So this is an old study. I think that was really interesting that I thought was a study they reviewed that looked at split face comparison of both formulations. So patients were randomized. Half of their face, they used 5%. Half of their face, they used 0.5%. And we do, know, and the clearance rate was 43%, and but 5% 5-fluorouracil had much higher rates of irritation, erosion, dryness, burning, pruritus, pain, on and on and on, sort of things that you expect. Now I want to talk about compliance, because I did do my residency at Wake Forest, and Steve Feldman, who's who's there, is the king of compliance. And this was a study that he did with these uh, medication caps. They're like, uh, uh, like monitoring caps. Does everyone, does, did everyone hear about the first study that he did with these with triamcinolone? So this is fascinating. So I, I was still in residency when he did the study. So we had some patients with eczema. And we said, come and we're going to give you some free triamcinolone. Okay? Use it twice a day. It's free medicine. All we ask you is you come for your follow-ups and keep a little log. Tell us exactly when you're putting it on. Just mark it down, AM, PM. I put it on twice a day as instructed. The patients were, were seen, you know, certain follow-up weeks. 
and we looked at the slog and we weighed their, their jars to make sure that they're actually using the medicine, how much of it were, they're using. Well, what the patients were not told is that in the cap on this jar was a little chip that recorded every time they open and close the jar. So you open the jar to put your stuff on, it makes like a little tick, okay? Guess what percentage of patients, guess how many patients use the medicine the exact number of times that they logged in their book? It's not zero, it's one patient. So of all the patients, one patient used the medicine the way they described. And I think he was like an accountant or an engineer, something like that. How many patients use the medicine every day, twice a day? Zero. Okay, so zero patients use the medicine every day, twice a day as instructed. So this was the same kind of a study using 0.5% 5-fluorouracil for actinic keratosis. So here you actually see that the overall adherence to once daily, not twice, remember this is once daily application, was pretty good, 86%. And the mean weekly adherence dropped from 92% in the first week to 82% at the end of the study. This is, this is what I call the dental floss effect. So when you see your dentist, right, like the first two weeks after you have your, your cleaning, you say to yourself, oh, this time I'm gonna floss every day. I'm just gonna floss every day this time around. So next, next time I get my cleaning, I'm not gonna get yelled at by the, by the dentist. Well, we all say that, but we kind of fall off, right? After the two weeks, we're like, ah, maybe I won't do it tonight, I'll do it tomorrow. And then, you know, it's almost six month time for your checkup and you're like, oh my God, I have an appointment in two weeks, I better start flossing again. So it's similar to what happens with our patients. They, they tend to use the medicine right after they see us and right before they see us back. Okay, so that's why they say, you know, you, you see the acne patients say, oh, you know, today I'm not so bad, but you should have seen me two weeks ago. And I know why they're better today, because two weeks ago they're like, oh my God, I have an appointment, I better start using my tretinoin. And it's the same thing that you see here. The thing that's different here than the eczema study, and I think it's an important difference that I want to point out to you, this is a once daily application. And it's a lot easier to do something once a day than twice a day. Actually, it's infinitely easier to do something once a day than it is twice a day. If you can do something before bedtime, as opposed to while you're rushing out of the house because you're late for work, it's a lot easier to do that. And in the study that we did with, with eczema, they had to use it twice a day. So the compliance here was pretty good, but I thought that was an interesting study to share with you all. All right, let's talk about cryosurgery. So when I was, uh, when I was a medical student, I worked with this great dermatologist in Philadelphia. And he told me that if he was vain enough, or, or cool enough, I should say, to have a, a vanity plate on his, on his car, it would say AK or LN2, because that's, what, that's what's paid for it. And he said that he thought his, his beach house should have a sign when you come in, it says, the house the AK built. And this is, and this is how a lot of us, or all of us here, earn a part of our living as cryosurgery, right? We have our cryospray, and we all the actinic keratosis. Well, what's the evidence for cryosurgery with actinic keratosis? It turns out the evidence is pretty poor. And the best evidence we have is actually category B evidence, which is not placebo-controlled double-blind study. 
And again, there's some, some, some reports of cure rate being almost 100%. Remember, if something is 100%, it's probably not true. So we have to examine, oops, wrong way. We have to examine exactly how effective cryosurgery is because we have to every now and again kind of step back and take a look in the mirror. This is the best study in the literature for, for, for using cryosurgery for actinic keratosis. And this study used 90 patients that 421 AKs on the facial scalp. They were either kind of flat AKs or a little bit hypertrophic. And they used a single timed freeze to thaw cycle. So when we talk about how many seconds they were frozen, it's not how many seconds you spray. It's not five second spray. It's the time that the lesion formed an ice ball to the time that it thawed. Okay, that's the time period that we're looking at. So I tell you, in my practice, I can't spray something for five, for five seconds. I'm gonna have a lawyer out, outside my door the next day because you know, the patient's gonna get a blister and it's gonna be my fault. So when you think about that, it's not the actual spray, it's the freeze, it's the, it's the uh, freeze time, it's the ice ball to commencement of, of thawing is, is the time, which is actually longer than the you actually freezing. And if you look at efficacy, if you look at cure rates, this is complete response, clearance. 20, 20 seconds. So you froze something, and it was frozen for 20 seconds, which is like an eternity if you, if you get something frozen. The, the uh, complete clearance or uh, complete response rate was 83%. This is where I am. I'm like in a one to five second because God forbid I freeze something for more than five seconds. Forget about it. The patients are going to complain. They're going to write a letter to the dean. They know somebody on the board of directors of the hospital. It's going to be a big mess. So one to five seconds, 39% complete response rate. And if you look at some fancy math, this is the uh, line of best fit. This is a curve that plots out all the responses, the most, the adequate response was seen above 10 seconds. So you have to have something frozen, stay frozen for 10 seconds in order for, to get the most optimal response. The peak cure rate was at 20 seconds. So now imagine if you have a patient with 16 actinic keratoses, and you're freezing, right? You're freezing 16 AKs, and you have to have each of them frozen for 20 seconds. How many people here do you think are doing that? Zero. No one's doing that. So I think we have to examine exactly what kind of evidence we have for cryosurgery. And we still, all of us still do it, and it's still a great tool, and I think it's still the treatment of choice for actinic keratosis, but it's not the only thing that we can do. That's my point. What about patient uh, uh, assessment of cosmetic outcomes? Now, cosmesis is the thing that my patients care about the most. The most they care about is what is it going to look like? I'm going to the, you know, I'm going to the opera in, in two days. You know, my grandkids are coming in a week. What is it going to look like in six months? Well, hypopigmentation in this study was seen in 29% of, of patients that had complete response. So when you're freezing them for long, long periods of time, about a third of them are going to get white spots. Assessment of cosmetic outcomes, excellent, was only 56%. So we strive to be excellent 100% of the time. 56% of the time is really not good enough. And this is what happens when you freeze for 20 seconds. If it's frozen for 20 seconds, I should say. So we talked about three treatments for act actinic keratosis, but how do they compare? And actually, there's a study that shows, that, that examined this. This is a study made, that, was, that was done in Germany. It's a small study, and there are lots of criticisms about the study, but I want you to pay attention because it's the only evidence we have. Maybe it's in the best evidence, but it's what we have, so we have to know it. So this study looked at topical 5% of mycomod, 
topical 5-fluorouracil 5% and cryosurgery. Oops, wrong way again. So the primary clinical objective was complete clearance by histology. So, so each patient had a little biopsy to prove that they had actinic keratosis. Secondary endpoint, 12-month clearance and cosmetic outcomes. So patients had to have at least five actinic keratoses. So in the protocol was per package insert. So in Europe, imicromat 5% you can use three times a week for four weeks in a cycle therapy. 5% 5-fluorouracil was twice a day for four weeks with one week built in for rest. And look how they did cryo. I guarantee you nobody does cryo like this. They froze lesions, one session, 20 to 40 seconds for each lesion. This is spraying for 20 to 40 seconds. And then if lesion was insufficiently cleared within two weeks, these patients came back. I guess you could do this in Germany. You could definitely not do this in New York City. There's no way. They would just arrest you and throw you, throw you out on the street. So 75% of patients, 75 patients were randomized, and there were 26%, in, uh, 26 patients in the imicomod group, 24 in the 5-fluorouracil group, and 25 in the cryotherapy group. So, and then they looked at uh, test of cure, which for, um, for imicomod was eight weeks after the last treatment. This is per package insert, four weeks for 5-FU, five, five and six weeks after, after cryosurgery. So what happened? Well, if you look at the... Um, if you look at histology and clinical, in the beginning, it really looks like 5-fluorouracil did better. Right? So this is the beginning. This is just in the beginning of the study. This is eight weeks follow-up for micromod, four weeks follow-up for 5-fluorouracil, and six weeks follow-up for cryosurgery. Cryosurgery did lousy. Look at that. It has the lowest efficacy rate. But what we really care is not what happens in two months or three months. We care about what happens in a year. So what happens in a year? If you look at a year out, the recurrence rate was highest for cryosurgery. And we'll talk about why I think that is. It was second highest for 5-fluorouracil, and it was the lowest for imicomod, 5%. Okay? And if you look at the field, not just the lesions, if you look at field, again, imicomod had the highest clearance rate. 5-fluorouracil had half of the clearance rate of imicomod for a whole field. And obviously for cryosurgery, you're not expecting a, an AK on the nose to go away after they freeze an AK on the forehead. So that really doesn't even count. Um, what about cosmetic outcomes? Well, it turns out, again, that 5% imicomod had the best cosmetic outcome. 5-FU and cryosurgery really did lousy. And uh, if you look at, this is the uh, 12 months after. Again, 12 months after, imicomod did the best of, all, of the three. So the point here is that we have limited evidence to compare them, but we have a little bit of evidence. And this study has lots of holes that we can poke at it, but the thing that really I want you to focus on, oops, keep doing that, is this. This is, this is complete clearance 12 months out. So complete clearance 12 months out, if you compare imicomod to 5-FU, there's really no comparison. Only 25 patients, but it is what it is. All right. Let's see, so I have a little bit of time left. So I want to talk to you about something that's new and something that's at the FDA, and it's currently being studied and, and um, probably will be approved in the next year or two, another topical treatment for actinic keratosis. And I thought it was kind of cute that you have a little cactus here, and this, is, uh, this, this comes from a plant. 
So this is Peplin, if any of you have heard about pe Peplin. And the Peplin program has had phase two and phase three, and we'll just focus on phase three studies. So there are two studies that we need to know about. One was scalp and face, and the other one was forearm. So they did both. And this is phase three on the face and scalp. This is a randomized, double-blind, vehicle control study. This is, you know, level A evidence. Patients used 0.015% gel or vehicle, pay attention here, for three consecutive days. This is three applications, okay? Now, the problem is that they, they put it on a post-it note size area, okay? So this is not a whole face or a whole scalp. This is a 25 centimeter square area. So it's only three days, but it's a very small treatment area. There's 57 day duration in the study and they looked at the same efficacy rates as with a Mikomod. You know, a complete clearance was primary objective and then 75% um, clearance or lesion reduction. And 80% of patients treated their face and 20% treated their scalp. So guess what? Peplin did better than vehicle. No one is surprised here, right? Let's look at the pictures. So this is an, this is an average patient for their study and here's your 25 centimeter square area. This was the area where the patient put the medication on for three days consecutively. And this is day four, this is day eight, which in all the Peplin studies seems to be where the inflammation is the greatest. This is day 15, 29, and 57. So they went from this, that this patient had five AKs, to zero. This is complete clearance, not bad. Same, day one, here's day eight. They had some inflammation, day 57. And this is the most brisk reaction in their study. Okay, you can see that's pretty, uh, it's pretty bad. This is day four, day eight. So this is what they started with. This is your 25 centimeter square area. Three applications, day four, day eight, day 57. What about, what about body? So the, most of these were in the forearms and hands. So if you look here, arms and back of the hands were 65 and 21%. So the most of them were on the hands and, and forearms, which is where we see a lot of actinic keratosis. So here, it was not 0.015, it was 0.5% gel or vehicle. And pay attention here, two days. Okay, so face and scalp, three days. Forearms and hands, two days. And again, similar kind of results here. The uh, peplin did better than placebo did. And here's your, here's your pictures. So day one, day three, day eight, day 57. Again, a more brisk reaction here on this particular patient. Oops. So this is something to stay tuned for. So it's kind of shifting the paradigm. So perhaps in the near future, or in the foreseeable future, I should say, if the FDA approves this medication, we may have something that we can maybe use for just a couple days duration. But the problem again, it's a small area that's being studied. It's not a whole face or scalp. And it's, uh, um, you know, they still have lots and lots of erythema and crusting. So we're almost, almost done. I just want to tell you to kind of bring, bring everything back around about a study that we just finished doing at Sinai in Dermpath. So for, for years it's been postulated there, there's a histologic progression of AK to squam and it doesn't just go AK to bowenoid AK to squam in situ to invasive squam carcinoma. So we looked at um, 500 AKs and what we really focused on was follicular extension on pathology. And that's what this looks like. So here's your derm path. No, I, I do derm path, so I have to have at least one derm path slide in every talk that I do. So here's your AK. 
and this, here's a hair follicle, and this is where most AKs end. Most things that are precancerous or early, early respect the hair follicle. They don't cross the boundary. And some AKs tend to proliferate along the hair follicle, but they're not squames yet because they're not technically invasive in the dermis because they haven't broken through the basement membrane. And what we found is that patients that had actinic keratosis with follicular extension had a higher chance of skin cancer. But interestingly, the highest odds were for melanoma. They were for lentigo maligna. And there's a story here because some people believe, and I'm one of them, some people believe that AK isn't only a precursor lesion to squamous cell or, or basal cell, but it actually has a role to play in development of lentigo maligna, in development of melanoma and sun-exposed skin, because a lot of times what we'll see when we do derm path is that we'll see this exact picture only with pigment. And sometimes you can't tell if it's a pigmented actinic keratosis or it's a lentigo maligna very early. And if you do your special stains, a lot of times what you'll find is that it's actually a developing lesion of lentigo maligna. So if you have something that's pigmented, it's very important to biopsy it to make sure it's not LM already. The other thing I think is important is I think it's important for us to understand why so many AKs that we freeze actually recur. And the, the, the answer is the follicle. Because when you do your freezing, all you're, do, all you're getting to is this. You're lucky if you're getting to the, to the upper dermis. So when the thing actually scabs off, when they develop an ulcer, you're right here. This is where you are. So this, this part is coming off. Well, guess where the stem cells for skin are? They're in a hair follicle. So what happens to abnormal keratinocytes? What's going to happen when the abnormal keratinocytes in these follicle are going to re-epithelialize the ulcer that you just made with your cryospray? It's going to be an AK again. Okay? So you're freezing this, and it's growing back from this. Guess what? Just chasing your tail, because you just made an ulcer, you know, you, you, you did this, and now it's going to come back as an AK. So the point here, what I really want to drive home today is, is this. It's not good enough to use one modality of treatment for actinic keratosis. Whatever your modality of choice is, if it's freezing, if it's photodynamic therapy, if it's using topicals, we now have tools more than just what we had 50 years ago. And it's very important to combine the treatment to use combination therapy because that's really what we need to do, because it's a symbiotic relationship between cryo and topicals. Because let's say you freeze this AK, and then you have a pa the patient use topical therapy. Well, topicals work here. And guess what? The immune system can come in and, and clean this up. So if you're just using the cryo, or you're just using the topicals, you're missing the boat. Why are you missing the boat if you're only using topicals? because topicals are really lousy for hypertrophic actinic keratosis. So you need to freeze those first. You need to cause edema in the epidermis so that the topical that you're going to be using can actually get into where it needs to go to do its job. So if you, if you learn one thing today, it's combination therapy is the right approach to treatment of patients with actinic keratosis. And I'll take questions. I think I have about 10 minutes, 5 minutes maybe. So if there are any questions, I'll take those. I have a limited experience with Zyclara, partly because of getting it covered for patients, but I've used a good bit of the Aldera, both trade name and generic. But I have my Zyclara patients, I've had at least two in a row 
that complained of nausea, and both of them tried it, got nausea within 24 hours, stopped for a few days, tried it again, got the nausea again. I can't get them to use it because of that. You got any experience with that? So, you know, Joe Urizzo was my mentor in residence. He used to say that what you tell patients the first visit is patient education, and when you tell them that follow-up is an excuse. And every patient that I write Imikumat for, I tell them that about 2% of patients get flu-like symptoms with using either the 5% or the 375%. So what I do in these situations, and that happens, happens you know, 2% of the time, is when you go back on the treatment, you don't use it every day. So you take a break, let them get better, and then what I do is I titrate. I say, well, why don't you try it twice a week, Monday and Thursday. Feeling fine, go up to three times a week. If you're still feeling fine and you feel adventurous, go up to four times a week, and, and so on and so forth. And most patients can tolerate it with a, with a more spread out treatment course. The question that I always get when I, tell, when I tell folks this is how do you know when they're done? Well, they get a box. And it's, it's, when they're done their box of, of, of packets, that's how they know they're done. So if it takes them six weeks or 16 weeks to go through the box of, of uh, Imikumat 375%, that's how I know they're done. And they still take the rest period. The same, same kind of scenario can be set for, um, you know, let's say you have a patient that cannot afford to, be, to have any redness, right? They have a high-powered job and, you know, they're on TV or whatever you, you have. And they say, Doc, you know, I know I need to do this. I know I spent too much time on the golf course. I just cannot be red in the boardroom on Monday morning. So what I do in that case is I, I say, okay, well, you're going to use it once a week. And you're going to do it on a Thursday because you take Fridays off. It must be nice. You take Fridays off and you're going to be red maybe Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you're back to normal. It's the same kind of a scenario. You can titrate from the lowest to where they can tolerate it without any problems. Thank you. Hi, I wanted to ask, um, I didn't, you didn't talk any about solar rays. Um, and if you don't use it, is it just for the compliance issues? Um, let's see, how should I put this? And, and, I, and I, do, um, I do work with Pharmaderm, which is a company that makes solar rays, so I feel like I can really say this. I don't talk about medicines that don't work. It has the lowest efficacy of all the topicals for AKs. Twice a week, twice a day for you know months and months and months. I really think you're, you're, the bar is so high, the patients just don't do it. I really don't think. I think the compliance, if you actually measure compliance of solar race patients, I think it's going to be very, very low. And remember, the patients in the studies, they're recruited and they're constantly encouraged. Your patients are not, you're not calling your patients every week like our fellows are. Don't forget to put your medication on every day, twice a day. So I really think compliance is very poor in, those, in that particular uh, medication. That's why I didn't talk about it. Would you say the same thing about ALA, blue light? Well, I think ALA has a place in treating actinic keratosis. You know, Alan Fleischer, who I know you know because you've worked with him before, when a PDT ALA first came to the States, his quote was that it's a treatment looking for a disease state, okay? I do think that it has a place. I use it all the time, not for AKs. I use it off-label for acne and for sebaceous hyperplasia. If you, talk, if you look at ALA PDT with AKs, I think it has a role if you do, th if you do other things as well. If you do dermabrasion for all the hypertrophic lesions and you let them sit there for three to five hours, to incubate in your office if they can stand 
the stuff on their, on their scalp or face for three to five hours, I do think it has a little bit of efficacy, but I don't think it's as efficacious as some of the other topicals that we have. Um, incidentally, there was a study looking at ALA-PDT with 5% of mycomod, and they, they tend to play well together, sort of one potentiating the other. The other thing you could do is you could freeze and, and use ALA-PDT, but I wanted to focus more on topical therapy today. Yes, sir. Would you comment on uh, the efficacy of the plain 5-FU cream as opposed to the 5-FU in the microsponges? So the, the efficacy, if you look at the, the study that I showed you that looked at the five studies, they're, they're virtually identical, although 5-FU, 5% had a higher absorption rate. The problem with the 5% the, the is that it's intolerable, and that's really the issue with it. But if, and if you look at the 0.5%, the, the microsponge technology, it is a little bit better tolerated, but the, um, this, if, you look at, if you look at it and you compare it to other topicals, it, I don't think it's quite as good. That's, Thank you. that's what I really think. Um, what is the mechanism of action of the new, that peplin, and what is your oh, favorite? Oh, the mechanism of action. And what's well, your favorite thing for actinic the, um, the, the short answer is nobody really knows how it works. The long answer is it's thought to maybe induce an immune response like a mycomod, and it's thought to inhibit mitochondrial uh, production, mi mitochondrial function in cells. But it's, um, the, the mechanism of action is still being elucidated. Oh, actinic calitis, that's a great question. So again, like off-label, right? Um, way off-label. So for actinic calitis, you can do a couple things. One is I think, I think cryo actually works, especially for the thicker lesions. And what I use, what I've been using is, yeah, the whole, the whole area. What I've been using lately is combination of cryo with 3.75% of mycomod. And with lips, you have to be very, very careful because they do get very brisk reactions. So again, I titrate. It's, you know, it's, it's, you go, it's low and slow. So first, first week, they do it once a week. They put it on a Monday or Friday, whatever the day. And if they don't get too much redness and irritation, the following week, they're going to do it twice a week. And I usually cut them off at about three times per week, because if you do it for more than three times per week, you really you get an exuberant response. The treatment course is actually shorter than for AKs and other areas. So most of my patients, what they'll, they'll do is they'll do it for about four to six weeks, depending how many applications they get. They're only doing it once a week. They're going to do it for six weeks. If they're doing it once or twice, maybe five. If they're doing it twice or three times, maybe four weeks. And then I bring them back often, and I check. If it looks like there's anything there, they go back on their treatment. So I usually see them two weeks after they're done because in my experience, that's about how long it takes for the inflammation to, to subside where you can actually make an evaluation. And you have to, um, to pre-treat for, uh, for herpes. So if they have a history of, um, of herpes labialis, you have to make sure you give them that sample of Valtrex you have in your office. Or they're gonna call you really, really mad. And then you're gonna hear from their lawyer. Any other questions? Well, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your meeting. Thank you.